if you would this morning, to Romans chapter 2. may say more in a moment, but we could obviously spend a good deal more time in chapter 1, just the catalog of sins that the Apostle gives us in the closing verses of the chapter are a staggering study and a commentary themselves on the condition of fallen man. But to understand all of the nuances of the terms that he uses and the sins that he describes is in many ways not to add so much as it were to the argument, but just to give the evidences of what he's argued that man is fallen, man is depraved. And that depravity, that willful turning away from God and His truth results in all of the things that we've seen. And the sobering aspect of that result is there's a judicial element to them. God gives the ungodly over to that reprobate mind. But we'll begin today reading in chapter 2 and verse 1. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For when thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest dost the same things. But we're sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and dost the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. To them a by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality eternal life, but unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish upon every soul of man that doth evil, of the Jew first, and also of the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. For there is no respect of persons with God. For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. We'll end reading there in verse 16. And we trust again the Lord to add his own blessing to the public reading of his word. To bow our heads together as we begin today. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we pause again to acknowledge your presence, 
We come in that acknowledgement asking that you will be pleased to draw near, Lord, individually to our own hearts, that you will help us to set aside distraction, Lord, certainly not to seek distraction, but let us seek to hear and understand your word. Let us each ask that the Spirit might take the word up and use it in our own lives. And so, to that end, we pray that you'll give help to the preacher, as well as the hearer, and that you'll bless us together as we meet in Jesus' name, and pray in his name. Amen. When we come to the second chapter of Romans, we come to a transition in Paul's argument. Some of the chapter divisions, as we've said all along the way in our ministry, are unfortunate. Most often they're helpful because they do mark transitions of thought and so forth, and that's clearly the case here. But this is a transition that is occurring inside of what's clearly Paul's opening argument with regard to the condemnation of sinners the revelation of wrath, as it's phrased in chapter 1 and verse 18. And from that verse going through to chapter 3 and verse 20. But it would be good for us before we address the transition to again pause and review where we've been. What Paul has said, what groundwork has he laid, where is he going? And we said Romans has a clear thesis statement, if you will. There's good news. There's the gospel And this gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We commented a little bit that the depth of depravity described in Romans 1 gives evidence of the necessity of power in the gospel. So the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. This gospel reveals the righteousness of God in saving sinners by faith. You might say, the solas of the Reformation, the chief one indeed, justification by faith alone, finds its source other places as well, but clearly in that thesis of Romans. It's from faith to faith, from beginning to end, from first to last, through and through. This gospel is the good news of God justifying sinners through faith. And so here, this truth we come to understand is all the more glorious when we discover the true nature of the sinner's need. And so from verse one, or chapter 1 and verse 18 to chapter 3 and verse 20, Paul begins to underscore and to reveal this revelation of God's wrath. The description of the condition of fallen man. And so what we've seen thus far, and in some ways it's been kind of hard to outline the sermons for this series so far, because, well, there's, there's this overriding outline that we're following that we're not dealing with the whole or even significant pieces of in each individual sermon. But as we've suggested thus far, we've seen this progression in thought. There is a revelation which cannot be silenced. The truth of God as our Creator and our Judge is plain and evident for all to see. You see it in the pages of creation. You see it in the conscience. 
of men's hearts. There is a revelation that cannot be silenced. And nonetheless, the presence of that doesn't keep sinners from seeking to silence it. They seek to suppress that truth as is unfolded. And so we've come to a second point in our progression of thought. There's a rejection of that revelation which cannot be excused. Men see this, it's clearly understood, but yet they suppress it. And this can't be excused. And this brings upon them, as we see, a judgment which cannot be ignored. And it's this progression of thought that's occupied our thoughts over the last several weeks in the closing portion of chapter 1. I was wrestling actually with leaving chapter 1 and coming to chapter 2 today because many, many more points could be made from that first chapter. If I just highlight for you to note again the seriousness of the fact of God removing His hand of restraint and that allowing the depths of man's depravity to be displayed. We need to understand the day in which we live is a time of the removal of God's hand of restraint. There are aspects of what we call in our doctrinal framework common grace that are being withdrawn. It's a sober, could we use the word scary, thing to understand that we're living in such times. But when we come then to that closing verse of this first chapter, if you read that with me again, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. There's a description here of the depths of sin to which the world and fallen mankind has gone. <coughs> this verse is a picture here, if you will, of a case in which sinners have gone to the point where they not only commit the sins that have been outlined here, but they encourage others in doing so. They've reached the point where there's no shame. There may be points along the way in these various cycles of sin and depravity in which God extends that hand of common grace and then withdraws it, in which men might pursue some of these sins, but they do so in the dark. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. They understand they're evil, but they, they pursue them anyway because that's where their hearts are directed and what they want. But here's a description in which it's gotten so bad that sinners don't only commit the sins, they openly encourage the sins. They openly encourage and support others in doing the same. When we move to chapter 2, this begins to change. Paul actually begins to make use of some literary devices and stylistic patterns that he'll use frequently in this book and in some cases in other epistles as well. He starts what some speak of as a diatribe or a dialogue, a conversation with an unknown person. It's like in a play where the main actor is doing the script or whatever and then he, he steps aside and he, 
he starts talking to somebody else to maybe give the audience a little more background before the, the play continues. Well, that's the type of thing Paul's doing here. He engages in a conversation with an unnamed and really just a hypothetical person. Uh, some of the times Paul uses a device like this, and we'll see this some very significant places in the epistle, he comes to anticipate an objection. I've pointed out and hammered a few times in recent years that transition between Romans 5 and Romans 6. If you really understand the theology, the truth of what Paul has unfolded in Romans chapter 5, justification by an imputed righteousness and not any righteousness you work up out of yourself, then the natural question is going to come to your mind. If you really get that. Well, well, if it's all based on Christ's righteousness that's counted as mine and not any of the stuff I do adding to that or making that effective for me, then does it matter how I live? Paul says, I know you're going to think that as soon as you grasp what I've just said. Well, there's a sense in which that's what Paul's doing here. Not so much putting it forth as a, a clear-cut objection, but he's bringing another perspective. He anticipates another facet of his argument, and in this case, he enters into a dialogue with a, another person, as it were, than the person described in Romans 1.32, who not only openly commits these sins, but openly endorses other people committing these sins. Here he introduces a person that still commits these sins, but doesn't openly endorse other people committing these sins. He condemns other people committing these sins. Many suggest that chapter 1 is Paul's description of the Gentiles, and chapter 2 is Paul's description of the Jews. Well, on the surface... And really, the simple answer to that question is yes. But I think if you work it through and understand it at a deeper level, I don't even think it's a, a different level, it's just a deeper level. What Paul has described in chapter 1 is the condition of all of humanity. There's universal condemnation because there's universal sin. But then the thought comes up, well, what about people that aren't like that description in that last verse of the chapter? Who sin and then condone the sin in others? What about people that speak up against these type of sins? There's a religious, fleshly perspective that comes into view. And clearly, it's the Jew that he has in mind, but... The Jew isn't named until verse 17, actually, in this chapter. And so there's a sense in which, if we see a normal understanding of chapter 1 being about Gentiles, chapter 2 being about the Jews, chapter 1, if we can, I say, deepen that perspective a little bit, is about the whole of humanity, and chapter 2 is about anyone who thinks himself exempt from that condemnation of the whole of humanity. 
And of course, this is best exemplified by the attitude of the Jews of Paul's day. I think, though, by extension, we could indeed and should indeed expand the application of what he's dealing with in this chapter, not merely to Jews by ethnicity or religion, but any Jew or Gentile, any, shall we say, church-going people who believe somehow that they're different than the ones described in chapter 1. That somehow they are exempt from the condemnation and the universality of that condemnation described in chapter 1. The clear issue between chapter 1 verse 32 and between chapter 2 and verse 1 is that of the person who is under condemnation and who does things he knows to be wrong and yet still does them and encourages others to do them. This, we could say, at least has the benefit of consistency, of integrity. I know it's wrong. I don't care. You shouldn't care either. Let's just live this way. But you turn the page to chapter 2, and here's the person that still does things he knows to be wrong, and yet he condemns others. This isn't consistency. This is hypocrisy. And it is to this that the Apostle turns our attention as we turn the page to Romans chapter 2. I want today to look at the opening verses of the chapter, in some ways lay the groundwork of the arguments and what will flow out in the remainder of this second chapter, and just put before you today, really under this broad umbrella really of the religious flesh, the hypocritical nature, whatever other description you want to place upon it. But I want to put these three thoughts before you as we consider what Paul is saying here. And the first one is this. There is a consistent tendency among the self-righteous to draw attention to the sin of others. There is a consistent tendency among the self-righteous to draw attention to the sins of others. Now I've used the description self-righteous. Well, I'm not preaching to many Jews at least that I know of today. The Jews were, on the whole, exemplary, if you will, in manifesting this tendency. It was characteristic sin of the nation. It is where the perversion of truth had led the nation. But it's a sin, it's a tendency that applies to far more than just national or ethnic or religious Jews. I say there's a consistent tendency among the self-righteous to draw attention to the sin of others. Now we won't today look at all the particular arguments that many give, 
But it's interesting, and I haven't pursued these myself, but there are some commentators that delve into the apocryphal writings, writings of the Jews in that intertestamental period, not inspired, and yet there's historical information there to be sure. And there are passages among some of those books in which almost the the very language, the words that Paul is describing and condemning here are found in the mouths of the Jews. Lord, look at us. How different we are than these Gentiles that have captured us and taken us captive and all these. Look at how they live and we're so grateful that we're different than them. And that you look at us differently than you look at them. But here, what do they do? I say they draw attention to the sin of others. Remember Christ's parable of the Pharisee and the publican? The Pharisee that goes down to church and lifts up his prayers and says, Lord, I thank You that I'm not as other men and I'm not as this publican over here. And the publican who wouldn't even lift up his head and cried, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Jews had, can we use the word, evolved in their apostasy to the point that they did see a difference between themselves and the Gentiles. Not a gospel difference. Not a difference as well as described in the Exodus, that remarkable phrase where the Lord talks about putting a difference between His people and the Egyptians. Though they see a a natural difference. They don't see a difference of distinguishing grace, being recipients of undeserved, unmerited favor. Though they began to look at themselves as having merit, of being different than the Gentiles because they were better than the Gentiles. Lest we look at the Jews and think, yeah, well, that's where they were. And that we're never in danger of such things. The flesh, friends, if you haven't discovered it in your own experience as a believer, then let me just put it before you and ask you to put it to the test. The flesh that remaining old man, even in the believer, has a tendency to corrupt everything. You've heard me speak and deal with the little triangle illustration of legalism and antinomianism and the Gospel not being the halfway point between them, but on a different plane entirely. The flesh looks at different representations of Christianity in the church and says, well, if we've got this tendency, we've got to move in the other direction toward the other tendency. And the legalist and the antinomian can only produce self-righteousness and worldliness. We're a little wound up too tight. We need to be a little more worldly. That's not the answer to self-righteousness. Humility is the answer to self-righteousness. And then when you look at the 
church and maybe yourself and say, you know, we're, we're a little bit too much like the world. We've got to be different. Well, the answer to worldliness is not self-righteousness, but the flesh wants to go there. It's holiness and humility, and they just can't get together in the flesh. It's an impossibility. But the Spirit can bring them together. And of course, that's what the Gospel is going to be discovered to do as we work through Romans. But here Paul's looking at the Jew as the example of the self-righteous. The example of those who think that in themselves they are different than other sinners. In themselves, they merit a different perspective on the part of God than what He has for the Gentiles, for the worldlings, for the lost. You can look at the dangers of this in church history. I don't care if you're Reformed, Presbyterian, Baptist, Brethren, whatever. We tend to look at the externals. I had a man that visited the church many, many years ago in the early, early days of our church. Knew he was a lover of the Puritans. There weren't very many Reformed churches in Winston at the time at all. I thought he may have a real interest to come with us, and ultimately they didn't. And I said, that's fine, it's between you and the Lord. I don't want you here if you don't want to be here. But uh, I asked him you know, what his thoughts were and his reasoning, and he said, well, it's the infant baptism. I just can't you know, see going along with people that baptize babies. And you have unsaved, baptized people in the church. I said, okay, fine enough. Those are serious and difficult issues and arguments. But I said, what about uh, the Baptist churches that you've been part of? I said, do you believe everybody that's been baptized as a church member is actually saved? Well, that brought a response you can imagine. Kind of smiled and said, no. Well, I said, now think about it this way. In those churches, in order to be baptized, you have to give testimony of being converted before baptism. Because the only way you can become a formal member of the church is by being born again and then baptized. He said, right. I said, so in this case, you've got people who told the church leadership they were saved. The church leadership agreed with that assessment let them have the ordinance of baptism and welcome them into church membership, and yet you admit there's many, many, many of these people that are unsaved. He said, yeah. I said, which one's worse? They're both equally dangerous. They're both equally wrong. But yet we all equally have the tendency to try and make this just a a simple thing, as it were. Whatever means of distinguishing ourselves from others, well, we're church members and they're the world. There is a consistent tendency among the self-righteous to draw attention to the sin of others. You put that into practice 
Certainly with the lost, when you go to witness to someone that you know is lost, where does the conversation usually go? Yeah, but I know such and such a person that says they're a Christian and they do this and they do that. They live this way. What are they doing? Well, they're trying to deflect the tension from their own sinfulness, their own spiritual condition and neediness, and get you to look over there at the sinfulness and ostensibly the deeper sinfulness of that person in comparison to themselves. Well, that's not gospel thinking. Gospel thinking can understand, yes, there may be people that outwardly their lives consist of this or that other sin, sins that are open and known, and they may be more extreme than any sins in my particular life. But it doesn't matter how deep or how bad that person's sin is, it doesn't make me into a (laughs) non-sinner. It just makes me feel better because I can point a finger at them. And maybe I can, as the Jew here, add to that. Let me show you a little bit of his sin and then let me show you a little bit of my righteousness, my goodness and how I'm better than him, different than him, not under condemnation like him. What's the argument Paul's building in chapters 1-3? to Universal condemnation. Universal need of salvation. There's a consistent tendency among the self-righteous to draw attention to the sin of others. Let me make a second statement to you today. True morality is not based upon a relative comparison of others with ourselves. True morality is not based upon a relative comparison of ourselves with others. And yet that again is where the religious flesh wants to go. The Jew here makes his boast of God. We'll see in some later studies here some of the the statements and the arguments that the Jews make with regard to building themselves up and supporting their own self-righteousness. But true morality isn't based upon a relative comparison of myself with others. And yet that is exactly again where the flesh goes. We can't argue that some of the sins described in chapter 1, if they're openly pursued and sanctioned, these things which show a darkness of mind, a depravity of mind as well as action that has that reprobate mind, that these abominations, as they're described in Scripture, are deep sins. But where's there a sin that isn't deep? The Church of Rome has historically drawn a distinction between mortal sins and venial sins. The mortal sins are the bad ones. They're the ones that kill grace. They're the ones that if you commit them after you're baptized and regenerated by your Roman view of 
infant baptism that you have to get saved again. You have to do works of penance to get back in the fold. Thus the evolution of Rome's heresies. It's a question I give in one of the quizzes in the seminary. James Buchanan is a textbook I have students read for a particular class, Buchanan's classic on justification. True or false, Buchanan believes all sins are mortal. True. What sin? Is of such a modest nature that God should let that into heaven? God should let heaven consist of thoughts like that. No. None. True morality is not based upon a relative comparison of ourselves with others. And if you look at what Paul is saying here, and we'll see him unfold in this second chapter, he's really doing the same thing in this systematic statement of the Gospel that Christ did in the Sermon on the Mount. In the early days of His ministry as He presented Himself as Israel's Messiah. He pointed out Israel's need. And you see in that fifth chapter, as he begins to unfold the truth, you look at the Beatitudes and that description of the new man and the changed heart, changed mind, one that mourns, one that's sorry for his sin, sees himself as the sinner. And it begins to go through the descriptions. You've heard it said. Thou shalt not kill. But I say unto you, that if you're angry with your brother without cause, you're guilty of murder. You've heard it said you shouldn't commit adultery. But I say unto you, if you lust after a woman, you're an adulterer. And you see, that message was so striking to the Jewish mind, to the teaching of the Pharisees. God's laws is deeper than just the outward pursuit of wicked and evil things. It touches the thoughts and inclinations of the heart. You mean that us Jews are just as guilty in the sight of God as those Gentiles? Yes. And that's why John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, came forth preaching a baptism of repentance. He didn't come preaching a baptism of, you're so much better than the Gentiles. Thank God you're getting baptized. No, a baptism of repentance. Because true morality is not based upon a relative comparison of ourselves with others. To come to understand this is to come to understand a truth, a point of doctrine, sadly, that has needed to be grasped and regained in our own generation. 
It's one of the things that dispensational theology really robbed the church of as they pursued their premise that wanted to build on their eschatology. If I could put, as we move into that, put before you the third statement I want to give you today. True morality, rather than being based on a relative comparison between ourselves and others, true morality is based upon the fullness of God's law. It was the spirituality of the law that Jesus had to remind Israel of. It's the spirituality of the law that Paul is reminding the Jews of in Romans 2. It's the spirituality of the law that all religious but self-righteous people need to be reminded of in every generation. The danger of the Jews in Romans 2 is the same as the dangers of baptized church members in North America in 2022. Do you see yourself as different than the world because you're religious? Do you see yourself as different from the world because you condemn the kind of sins the world commits even though you're drawn after those sins yourself? Even though you maybe even commit some of those sins in the flesh yourself? What do you need? You need to be confronted again with the spirituality of the law. The true nature of the moral law of God. You see, what Paul is dealing with in Romans 2, and we'll begin to close our thoughts with this here today, he's dealing with the Jews who would defend themselves. A constant tendency of the flesh. Point the finger at another as a way of diverting attention from self. He did it too. He did it worse than me. You should be dealing with that before you want to look at me. That's the ungodly, unregenerate mindset. What was the Jew doing in Romans 2? Condemning the Gentile and justifying self. What is Paul going to do in this chapter? He's going to, as Christ did in the Sermon on the Mount, systematically dismantle that thinking. He's going to work the Gospel through He's going to work an honest assessment of the sinner through to the point that he'll reach in chapter 3 where we find the words that every mouth may be stopped and all the world guilty before God. Jews could hear what Paul said in Romans 1. They could say, Amen. It is bad, Paul. You've seen it. We've seen it. 
Can you believe how these Gentiles live? They are under God's judgment. This is a result of God's hand of judgment against them. Amen, Paul. And I'm glad we're not like them. Paul says, yeah, oh man, who are you? To judge others. And we might should add the note here. This passage, nor any passage in the Bible, is not saying it's wrong for us to pass judgment on one another with regard to crimes or sins. No, the thing that's wrong, whether you're looking at Matthew 7 or Romans 2, is judging others by a standard by which you refuse to judge yourself. Oh, he has to be condemned for doing that, but I get a pass. And the point he's going to argue here is you may say you get a pass because, well, your level of sinning is not quite as low as his level of sinning. By a right understanding of God's law, they're the same. You're a lawbreaker. The soul that sins shall die. Period. So close your mouth. Stop defending yourself. If we understand it, we look at it, we see it everywhere. It's one of the things, one of the tasks of parenting to expose this thinking in our children because it just comes up everywhere. Oh, but when we're adults, we don't do that, right? Engage in marital counseling sometime. Let's put a spotlight over here on all of his problems. Put a shield up over here. Oh, no, no, let's put the spotlight over her and her problems. No, no examination here. Or workmates. It's everywhere. Here's the tendency of the self-righteous soul. So as we look at the groundwork and the opening arguments of this second chapter, there is, I say, a consistent tendency among the self-righteous to draw attention to the sins of others. But true morality is not based upon a relative comparison of ourselves with others. True morality is based upon the fullness of God's law. And when we examine that, well, Paul will find the whole world guilty before God. We'll find all of us, religious or irreligious, church attending, I've never been there in my life. All of us guilty before God. It's when we're found there that then we see something of the goodness of God leading us not to condemn the other guy. Leading us to repentance. Paul begins a discussion with a hypothetical listener because he knows 
in the heart of the self-righteous. They can hear and even say amen to all the condemnation of the worldly in chapter 1. But what are the people who don't look at themselves that way? And even speak against the sins of chapter 1. What about them? They're guilty too. They're needy too. Condemnation is universal. The need of salvation, church member or worldling, the need of salvation is universal. Here is the opening argument of the book of Romans. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, we come pray that your spirit will take up the word, take up the truths that we have discussed today. Lord, if there are souls here that need to admit and view themselves in this way and be converted, do that work. Lord, for every born-again believer here, Lord, let such a gospel understanding deepen our walk with you. Deepen our sense of gratitude. Deepen our humility. Help us rightly to think gospel thoughts after yourself. Lord, bless your word to us, one and all, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.